Hello and welcome to the Performance Project Podcasts with the RCSA. I'm Ken Walker in Inverness. I'm an NHS surgeon, a trainer and educationalist. I'm a family man. I love to be outdoorsy when I can and occasionally play along in an amateur band. And I'm Stephen Yule, a husband, dad and academic psychologist and mentor working in Edinburgh and Boston. I love vinyl records, sport, wine and travel. If you're mid-career, you probably also have lots of roles, and sometimes we thrive on that. Sometimes it's a struggle, isn't it? In this series, we'll be talking honestly with thought leaders about the challenges of mid-career, and maybe we'll pick up some tips from the experts. We're delighted to have with us today an old friend who's Michael Moneypenny. Michael is an anaesthetist in Forth Valley Health Board here in Scotland and president of the Association for Simulated Practice in Healthcare. Good to have you with us, Michael. Hello, thanks for having me along. You're very welcome. And I've known I've known you, Michael, since oh well for some time. In those days, you were director, one of the directors of the Scottish Centre for Simulation and Clinical Human Factors in Larbert. Catchy right. title. And you were, and also you were clinical leader or president of the Scottish Clinical Skills Network in those days. And Steve, I think you have worked with Michael as well. Yeah, a little. I mean, I knew Michael by reputation only at the start from your your work at the Clinical Simulation Centre, Michael, and then latterly had the real pleasure to work with you on our Master's in Patient Safety and Clinical Human Factors at the University of Edinburgh, where you are one of the faculty and a very popular tutor as well. So we're (laughs) delighted to work together on that. Good to to be here. Thanks for having me along, Ken and Steve. And Michael, do you still have a blog on the the Scottish Centre's website? Yeah, so there's a, a blog. Just if you put in Sim Center and blog, it will come up with a yeah. blog that I occasionally still update. It's been a wee while. Yeah, I saw some great book reviews there that you've done. Right. Let's get into the questions, Michael. And uh, I think one of the reasons you were so helpful to us back in the days when we were trying to get a little more surgical simulation going and, and boot camps and so on was that course that you developed and ran in the, in the Scottish Centre in Stirling, as it was then, or, or in Larbert. And, you know, I think when surgeons go on courses about how to do simulation, they tend to talk a lot about models and fidelity and so on. But when you and your team designed that really popular faculty course, and you called it Making Simulation Work, and it was really mostly about debrief, wasn't it? Why was that? Yeah, that's right. I guess... Mainly because when you, if you look at the literature around simulation, it emphasizes the role of the debrief. If you have ever heard or read anything by Peter Diekman, for example, he, he says it's unethical to do simulation without a debrief. And that's what the best evidence medical in medical education reviews have come up with as well to say, I mean, they refer to it uh, sometimes as feedback and sometimes as debrief, but say that that's the most important element within simulation. And so we felt that that's what we needed to focus on. When people, if people want to know how to do simulation well, then they need to they need to know how to debrief properly. And you know, I I, I say it's not about the mannequin. You know, sometimes people get obsessed about the, um, you know, the fidelity of the equipment or the you know the the, the VR kind of you know sixty thousand pound laparoscopic simulator. But actually, if the if learning is not there, if the debriefing is not there, then then that's that's probably a bit, a bit of a waste of money. So that's why we focused about the debrief. Do you think if you do simulations without debrief, you could do harm? You could be you know, training people very well to do the wrong thing, or you could be um, 
leaving them with you know without the kind of psychological safety or something yeah i mean yeah i think psychological safety is hugely important and this i think if you don't do a debrief with simulation then i suppose you don't know what the learning is you don't know whether the person has done the right thing uh, because they knew it was the right thing or by chance you don't know what the thinking was that was going on underneath you know so the debrief brings that out the, the debrief allows you to look at people's you know what we call mental frames which is you know why are people making the decisions that they make because generally people generally people make the decisions that they think are the right ones even when on, in retrospect you realize that they're not and the debrief helps us understand what was going on in that person's mind why did they think that was the right thing and what was the cause of, of the, if it is a performance gap, what was the cause of that performance gap? Sure. And I can really easily see how that would apply in a sort of scenario-based simulation with lots of non-technical skills uh, learning. But would it apply even in a technical, you know, a task trainer situation? Or Yeah, it's really interesting, Esther, because I, I think you're absolutely right. There's something there about non-technical skills and, and understanding what's going on in people's minds. And I think there's no reason why you can't use it in a technical skills performance app. And, you know, I try and think of whether it's a, a lab, lab called cystectomy, for example. And if you if you just tell the trainee that that's the wrong approach or that they shouldn't do that, or whatever it is that they're doing, you don't understand why they were doing that in the first place. You, you haven't got the why of it. And it might be that they weren't going to do whatever you thought they were going to do or that someone else told them that was the only way to do it or that they got confused about their anatomy, or, you know, you don't know what, what the underlying cause was. So you haven't got, you don't give them deep learning. You just give them a, a perhaps a single rule that if they ever come across a similar situation in the future, they're not to do that, which, yeah. which doesn't really help very much. Yeah. Thinking about the about rules, you've written recently how debriefing is good for safety culture and just culture. And I wonder if you could tell us a little more about that. Yeah, I, I really lo- I, I love the idea of a safety culture. I, I think in healthcare, we are still a distance away from that. And a safety culture for me is underpinned by a number of different sort of subcultures. And just culture is, is one of those, as is, a, as is a reporting culture, an informed culture, a learning culture and a flexible culture. I think they're kind of they have to coexist to some degree. So if you have a safety culture and a just culture, then you will be able to do good debriefs because people will know that this is not a blame culture, that this is going to be a learning experience, that we're looking at the system. Quite often it's the system that's a, that's at fault and not the individual people. And that we're trying to get better, you know, that we all make mistakes and we, we want to get better. So you know that those debriefs are going to work well if you have that in the first place. And I think it it works the other way around as well. I think if you do debriefing well, you can then promote a just culture and a safety culture, a reporting culture, because you can show through a good debrief that this is what this is what should happen after either a normal clinical experience or an adverse event. There should be learning from it, uh, and it should be non uh, you know not blaming individual people, but looking at people's actions and behaviors and seeing how we can be better next time. Um, so I think they kind of work together. Yeah, that's great. I actually had never thought so deeply about the link between psychological safety after, you know, during simulation in the debrief after a simulation experience and then the safety culture that might be in the hospital or the department or the 
operating theatre afterwards. But that makes a really clear link for that. And it's about doing things consistently and having an expectation. Okay, here's learning. It's a safe place. I can actually talk about things that didn't go so well. Yeah, I, I think there's, there's, you know, I think when people come on our courses and they see that this is what should happen, you know, when, when because th- things often go wrong, you know, we all, we often, because of the way the scenarios are set up, they're not, you know, they're, they're made to, to push people outside their comfort zone. So there, there will be performance gaps. But in the debrief, they see how, how those should be addressed. And I think, as more and more people do simulation and are exposed to this type of debriefing, that's the expectation back in clinical practice as well. So that when there is a mistake in clinical practice, the expectation is that we're going to have a debrief about it and we're going to mm. learn from it mm. uh, as opposed to trying to brush underneath the carpet or or talk about uh, behind each other's backs. Yeah, that seems really important. And, you know, one thing I I really enjoy when I did a lot of debriefing back in, in Boston of operating room teams yeah. was that people came to the debrief and had different perceptions, different feelings about what had happened, a shared experience. And that was a surprise to some people that people could come away from the same experience with a different understanding of what happened and why it happened. And I wonder if you could talk a little more about how you get uh, people to share different experiences and come to a new realisation. Yeah, I suppose, again, there, there's something about the safety of the the safety of the of the debrief, I suppose, would be one of the main things. I mean, I suppose you can talk about briefing as well, but the safety of the debrief, so that you don't have a dominant voice saying, "Well, this is this is obviously what was wrong," mm-hmm. and everybody's just nodding away um, and not admitting to the fact that actually they had no idea what was happening or they had a totally different diagnosis in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, if you can create that safe environment, then people will say, you know, I actually thought this was anaphylaxis. I know you're telling me that this was a major hemorrhage, but that's why I was getting the adrenaline out because I was, you know, I, I was totally down the, the wrong, the, you know, the wrong rabbit hole. Um, and I think that's one of the things you need to do in the debrief is to make sure that everybody has a chance and opportunity to, to um, contribute and you have sort of different sort of tips and, and things to do in the debrief to, to make that happen. Michael, have you reached the point now where it's spilled over into the workplace so that people would actually look forward to a debrief after an incident, whereas they used to approach it with dread? I think there's some, so I think especially when you, if you're looking at sort of adverse in, incidents, I'm not sure people look forward to it as much, but at least they know that it's going to be a non-judgmental uh-huh. review of what happened and, and an understanding that, that people are fallible, that we've all made in inverted commas stupid mistakes. Um, and that any of us quite often would, would have, uh, would have been in the same situation, done the same thing. You know, there's sort of reason, James Reason's substitution test, you know, if someone else in the same situation would have made the same mistake, then usually it's the system at fault as opposed to the person. Yeah. So I'm not sure they're looking forward to it, but I think they know that it's going to be, it's going to be safe. Yes, there's still going to be stress. Yes, they're going to feel uncomfortable. And um, there is, there is, I think, something we don't discuss enough, I guess, is this risk to ego. And I see this a lot and I feel it myself, you know, it's, it's, it's almost not so much as, you know, what do I think about myself? It's about what do other, what are others going to think about me when I tell them that I've done this thing, you know, and are they think I'm going to, you know, that are they, are they going to think I'm an absolute useless anesthetist? Yeah. Um, but in terms of the everyday work though, the debrief is still something that we 
Oh, well, I still I still insist on having a debrief after every at the end of every list, as it were. Yeah. But it's still not ingrained as much as I would like it to be. People, it's five o'clock or half past five or six o'clock, and people want to get away. Yeah, we and lots of people find it harder to get the debrief happening than the, than the brief. But uh, you you said when you were um, when you did a a really nice talk on this during a webinar for us a few months ago. You you started by saying how this was grounded in Maslow's hierarchy. Do you want to just tell us about that and 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 are there other theories that come to bear on this? Yeah, um, so. I was just thinking that Maslow's hierarchy sits really well with debriefing in the sense that you, for a good debrief, you must meet uh, physiological and physical needs. If people are tired or uh, need a cup of tea or, or, or need a bathroom break, then you're not going to have a good debrief. So that has to be sorted out. And, and I suppose another thing is the the seats, you know, or the, or the way people are arranged, you know, it should be, I know it sounds like we're getting into the nitty gritty or the minutia, but it should be a, a, a circular sort of arrangement. It's tricky to debrief people if they're sitting lecture style or if you're towering above, you know, if you're standing at the front mm. and they're sitting down, uh, it's tricky to, to debrief. And then the next level is safety. And in the times of COVID, you do have to think about physical safety. So there's something there about, about thinking about are we physically safe in terms of doing this? And then there's psychological safety, which I think we've mentioned before. And without psychological safety, I can't sort of stress enough, without it, you do not have a debrief without psychological safety. You have either a didactic uh, discussion or some kind of, you know, strange conversation. But if you don't have psychological safety, you're, you're not having a debrief. Um, yeah. The next step up is is love. And again, I, I don't, I'm not talking about physical love so much, but there is something there. And I think, again, about the needs of a good facilitator, somebody who... who that you do have to, in some ways, love the participants. You know, you have to understand them as human beings and and understand that they make mistakes and that you're there to help them. You know, you're not in a paternalistic way, but in a in a way of sort of trying to make them better and make, make you better. Uh, next is esteem, and that's about looking at uh, their esteem and making sure that they maintain it. And then the last is self-actualization, the very tip of... Um, Maslow's um, hierarchy, and I think again the best debriefs. That's what they. That's what they get to. You know, they get to a point where people are better afterwards. They 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 are better people afterwards. So I think that's Maslow's hierarchy in, in a nutshell. Yeah, that's that's really helpful. And on the course, of course, you and the and the others who who lead it, they they also give quite a lot of technique around that. Your colleague Al has always got this yes. coffee cup in the hand to, to create the pauses uh, I, I never realized till the second day that there's nothing in that <laughs> so yes there's great. lots and lots of ways of, of helping it I think yeah. you said about having other theories I think one of the main other theories that we use is constructivism the idea that you can you construct your learning or your the learners are constructing their learning they're not empty vessels into which right. you're pouring the information they are taking the stuff that you're talking about and what they've experienced on board yeah. and hopefully constructing, you know, appropriate learning for themselves. Sure. Yeah. That's really helpful. And Michael, you know, there, there are lots of different debriefing models and actually almost every simulation center has its own style. I'm thinking things like perils or advocacy inquiry or after action reviews. And I wonder what the 
pros and cons are of those models in in your view? I mean, what's what are the keys for adults to get learning out of these debriefing sessions? Yeah. Um, so just to go on a bit of a tangent there about adult learning. And, and you know, when I was doing my PG cert and in, in education, you know, and, and doing my MD and I just, there was this, all this stuff about adult learning styles and adult learners and our kids are homeschooled and they're not, you know, the learning is is similar. You know, I, I just, I feel like sometimes we think that children are, are empty vessels that should be filled up, but children also have the same kind of, you know, I think it, it suits us sometimes to think of kids as people that who need didactic teaching to be told stuff when actually you can use the same kind of thing with children. Just I think we talked before about using this, you know, outside work or whatever, but you can use the same kind of techniques at home as well as at work. But to get back to the adult learner and the, I think the general consensus now generally, although probably people who have got there who are, you know, this is their um debriefing style you know this is their name debriefing style would maybe disagree but I think the general consensus is that it doesn't matter so much which technique you're using as long as you're using it well as long as you're you know you're trained up to use it as a facilitator and perhaps as long as you have a little think about what technique you're using and why you're using that at that stage of the debrief is this the right is this the right thing to be using with these people should you be trying a different a different style? So you know, like we say, Steve, there's loads of different um, uh, techniques out there, and, and the Sim Centre in Scotland has its own style, um, which again is a little bit different from from everybody else's. But and that, and that's the one that we teach, but only because it works for us. So I think it doesn't find a style if you if you think about debriefing, just find a style that works for you and get good at using it. Yeah, I think that's great, actually. That's great advice because it, it is implicit. The context or the culture in which you are debriefing is so important. And so maybe this is why, in, you know, in Scotland, we have, we have a, a particular way of communicating, which is maybe different from other parts of the, of the world. Think about the East Coast of the USA, for example. And, and some of those styles are very innate and very entrenched in culture. But actually, that means that perhaps the debriefing styles and, and so on have to fit those. So it makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, I totally agree with you, Steve. I, I think you've hit the nail on the head there. There's some, you know, use the style that is appropriate for you as opposed to thinking, well, this is a style that, that you know, that I've been told to use by somebody who, who you know, who's based in the US perhaps or based in, you know, uh, the Far East or somewhere. You know, you'll know better, I think, what style works for your learners. Yeah, I guess it's got to work for you, but also work in a multicultural setting. I mean, our health service, health services in most countries are pretty multicultural now, yeah? Yeah, yeah. I think you're right, Ken, yeah. Talking about models there, so two other questions. Do you want to, I mean, that said that it's there are different styles for different people, do you want to just give us a, a quick one-minute thing about what your model is that you use? Yeah, so uh, we use... I mean, it's similar to what, uh, some others. So we use a, a model where you have reactions at the very beginning of the debrief. You allow emotions to be released at that stage, which I think the more recent sort of evidence shows that this is a useful thing to do, that you, that's what you should be doing. You should allow the dust to settle and, and uh, let people de-stress. And then we have a gender setting where we look at what do people want to discuss. And then we have our analysis phase where we use various different sort of uh, questioning styles to 
explore further what the you know what the actions were and, and why the right thing happened or, or the wrong thing or the wrong thing happened um, and then we have take-home messages which is really the take-home messages is really to make sure that your debrief is has worked it's it's it, it is partly take-home messages for the participants but a lot of it is just to make sure that what you've done is 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 appropriate um, and I think one of the things about the sim center in Scotland is that we use a constructive alignment approach. So actually the whole, the scenario is designed and run and then debriefed to the learning objectives, which many, I think a lot of other places don't do or don't do as as, as clearly as we do so that you, the yeah. debrief is purely around your learning objectives. Yeah, and we found that really useful to learn and particularly that thing about opening up with the reactions, uh, you know, with the open phrase, how was that? In my experience, I'm a surgeon. This podcast is for the College of Surgeons. And I've found that surgeons uh, seem really love Pendleton's rules. You know, okay, let's start with what went well, uh-huh. what went badly, uh, and then what went well. And, you know, some people call it the poo sandwich. But, you know, we do find that trainees can go, oh, right, we've got to do this dance. Yeah, and, and uh, yeah. What do you think? Yeah, I, think <laughs> I, I wonder if it's a bit. I wonder if it's a bit tired now. <laughs> I think. I think it was. It was probably good for its time. You know, when before other sort of ways of of having these conversations came out, I think Pendleton's rules, you know, was useful or, or worked in in that sense. But I think now, I think there's better ways of of doing it. I think Pendleton's rules is really some people sometimes say that there's not much bread and it's just the the just the meat in the middle, as it were, or the the stuff in the the stuff in the mm-hmm. middle. And it's and it's you know why 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 have that something that went well, something that didn't go well, and something that that went what you know why force that onto people when actually maybe there's three things that didn't go well, and actually you've got psychological safety established that you can talk about those three things you don't have to you don't have to think oh my goodness but i better tell them that they've got a nice haircut or something like that uh-huh, at the end so uh-huh. that they, they go away with a positive thing you know they should go uh-huh. away with a positive thing anyway because they should go away thinking that yes that wasn't the right thing that they did or the right you know the right thing that happened or but now they're better now they're not going to make that same mistake again that's sure. that's what they should yeah. go away with yeah and at the start, if you say to them, no, no, what, what went well first? It sort of interrupts their flow, doesn't it? Yes. Uh, and, yeah. Yes. And usually in our in our agenda setting, we do start with what went well, only because often people don't, you know, don't, can only think of the things that didn't go well. Right. You know, quite often, right. you know, people are very sort of um, negative about what, what happened. Okay. And what are the other classic sort of booby traps that there are in debriefing? I think the 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 main one that I now tell people, or yes, tell people is maybe the right word, on the faculty development course is that it should not be about you. If the debrief is ever about you, where you start feeling that they're challenging you, or you are emotionally kind of getting frustrated or angry, then then there's something going wrong with the debrief, and you know. You need to defuse that either by apologizing appropriately if that's what's needed or by getting a co-faculty in and helping out or uh, the debrief is about the learners and, and that's that's what the focus needs to be throughout. So I think that's my main sort of take-home message for, you know, things to avoid in the debrief. Do not make the debrief about you, which then often people sometimes feel like they have, they're maybe not on a pedestal, but they're there as a, a figure of authority. You know, they're there to... 
I talk about you know pearls of wisdom falling off their lips that the, that the the learners then you know pick up and are grateful for, uh, and, and that's you know the debrief is about co-learning, about sharing you know things that went well and things that didn't go well, and how we all make mistakes and how we all can be better. So I guess yeah, yeah my main thing is is don't make the debrief about you. Make sure it's about the learners. It's interesting. That's a theme that's I think coming through from one or two other podcasts as well. You know when you get to a point of being good at this it's the it's not about you thing uh, is emerging as a theme <laughs> yeah um, and i get what other things uh, other pearls about the debrief i suppose maintain psychological safety at all times at, at times sometimes people maybe think that the debrief is there for them to get even with somebody or or people that you know if they work together they never liked that person in the first place and now that they they feel like they've given they've been given the license to criticize that person. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, you have those, these interpersonal stuff can go on, but it's very very important that you make sure that, that doesn't happen. You you will be expected. The other participants will expect you to step in and to make sure that the ground rules are are understood and that this is not about uh, criticizing people. It's about looking at you know our performance, it's looking at behaviors, and seeing how we can do better. Michael, you, you, you mentioned this sort of utopian moment of debriefing after every case, even when things go well, which hopefully is most of the time, and talking about good good performance. And it made me think, is is the is the briefing or the brief just as important as the debrief in in having an impact on that safety culture? Absolutely, Steve. So yeah, I think the brief sets, I think people, people, sometimes people used to say it's all about the debrief and that's not true. The brief sets up uh, the, um, the stage for the debrief, I guess. And the brief, it can be, if it's, if it's before a simulated activity, then the brief needs to be clear about, you know, what's expected of people, the educational contract, as it were, that we will um, critique each other's performances, but there will not be, you know, it's not a blaming thing that we will try and, and, and sort of engage with the simulation as much as possible because it is it is not real. You know, it's never, you know, but by the very fact that there's a simulation, it, it's not real. And so there will always be things that are not realistic. Um, but we're trying to say to people, well, despite that, uh, engage with the simulation and and pretend as much as possible and do as you would do in real life as much as possible because yeah poor briefing can wreck can wreck the rest of the simulation as well we have the sort of the pre actual scenario brief as well where and i, I say again this is sometimes what you the the things I've, I've seen happen is where someone then goes into the scenario you know it's a simulated scenario they go in and their first question is who am i again you know what am I supposed to be? What am I supposed to be doing? So I say to people, you know, it's the to make it realistic. You don't want your participants to have some sort of existential crisis at the beginning of the scenario um, about who they are. You know that should be clear in the brief about what what's expected of them, who they are, where they are. And I think in clinical practice, the brief should be the same. It should be about can we have this contract between you and I at the beginning of the day, or the beginning of the shift, or the beginning of the operation about you know, what's the focus? Is there something that you want to talk about? Is there something you want to focus on? Is it your technical, you know, is this shooting ability or your ability, your situational awareness or decision-making around whatever? Um, let's make that the focus of this session today. And then to warn them that there will be a, this debrief at the end, you know, that you don't pounce on them at the end and say, by the way, now I'm going to talk about all the stuff that you didn't do very well. 
Now you started to effortlessly blend their simulation in the real clinical environment. So I was thinking, are, are you now talk? You were talking very clearly about setting people up for if for good simulation, so we know what the rules of engagement are and so on. And then I was thinking, this is the same as the as the briefing or using the WHO safe surgery checklist or any of those timeouts in real clinical practice. And I wonder if there are, if there are lessons that for simulation. Um, and how well we do that in simulation that could be translated into the real operative environment for sustainability of those messages. Yeah, I, re I really like that idea. So I think the WHO brief has been, has been, you know, a real game changer. I remember when I was a registrar uh, anesthetizing somebody and, and not knowing who the surgeon was, and then the surgeon appeared and they didn't know who the patient was. And they didn't know what the operation they were supposed to be having. So they were they were busy then leafing through the notes to figure out what they were actually supposed to be doing with this patient. And, you know, it was just, that's not, you know, that's not supposed to happen, you know. Um, so the brief has been amazing. And I think the brief, depending on, again, it's, I suppose, again, we can go back to culture, I suppose, to some degree. But the brief can be, although it shouldn't be, a tick box exercise where people just rattle through it, you know, tick, 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 tick. And then let's let's start with the actual work of the day. And the brief can be much more powerful. It can be a, a, a time for people to say, this is what I want to get out of today. These are the things we want to watch out for. And I've actually just started, I'm the lead for the emergency theater at Fourth Valley, the anesthetic lead for the emergency theater at Fourth Valley. And I've just started coming up with these little sort of sim action cards for during, for at the end of the brief. So we do a little brief and then we have a five minute sort of simulated activity without our mannequins purely just those standing around and we say this is the this is the crisis you know it's a major hemorrhage or it's um anaphylaxis or whatever and we've got i'm, I'm making up these little cards so anybody any of the members of staff who are standing around can can be the person who's leading it you know because sometimes you end up either the anesthetist or the surgeon leads this mm. thing but actually you know it can be the scrub nurse and it's on the scrub nurse card it might say you know you've just noticed there's, there's two liters of blood in the suction no one has said anything about that yet what are you going to do about it and it gives the scrub nurse and the license to say well i would speak up and i would say you know i can have quite a lot of blood and or is it blood and irrigation fluid or whatever and then it allows the team to discuss just over five minutes a really quick kind of shared mental model then around what to do about that uh, and the idea is to have maybe 60 or so of these action cards surgical anesthetic and, and scrub nurse and floor nurse sort of related things so that over the year we then go through these actions so that when it happens in real life it's okay because we've done it you know a month ago we talked about this and what we would do this sounds wonderful way of empowering people as well and, and even you, you're just to clarify this is something you would do for a few minutes in on a real um, operative day where you've got a list coming up and you'd have a kind of mini yeah. tabletop simulation. Yeah, so that's the idea. So that's the idea. Well, it's easiest in some ways in emergency theater because quite often the patient, you know, there's not the drive quite as much as there is with elective lists, you know, to get the first patient on the table by nine o'clock and uh, I'm, I'm trying to do the same thing with the obstetric theater as well, because there's similar sort of setup with the obstetric theater to do obstetric emergencies. And I think then people see the value of it. You know, people see the value of, of doing these sort of um, quick little scenarios. I'm thinking that would be a great thing, Michael, for also for the start of an acute surgical receiving unit ward round. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I, I like it as well, Michael, because it, 
we, these simulation sessions, if you're talking about a high fidelity simulation session in a in a mock operating theater, they're quite rare events or rare learning events for people. So we can't rely on that to to for safety. So actually having some more regular routinized small drills, if you like, like you mentioned, could be really effective, could actually make more impact than having the, a big fancy simulation center. Yeah, it's interesting. The whole, it's the whole sort of, you know, there's been lots of stuff around, you know, the high fidelity thing and, you know, the money and, and, and there's, there's definitely benefits to getting the team away from the daily work, you know, and, and doing focused multi-professional training where you can then rapidly go through a number of crises that you would maybe only see once every three years or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I think that when, if you, if you do debriefing well, if you do the sim part well, then actually every day is a learning opportunity. You know, I think there's a a book by David Marquette called Turn the Ship Around. And he's a, he was a, a, a nuclear submarine captain. And he was saying about, you know, we don't have time to train. You know, we don't have time to, you know, you know they, haven't got, they haven't got the time allocated for them to train appropriately. So he said, well, what, we, what we've got is, and I suppose this reflects a learning culture, what we've got is that we learn every day. And I think that that's why I, I know I love that concept that actually every day we learn, every day we debrief, every day we have a little think about what are the learning objectives for today? I, I, you know, I sometimes sort of sit in the anesthetic in the in the operating theater, and there's possibly I mean, loads of loads of people who could be learning aren't. You know, the medical students sort of stand there looking bored out of their skull because no one's talking to them because they're focusing on the operation. The registrar is being asked to hold a piece of equipment, uh, and and nothing's being told. To, you know, they're not they're not being taught at all. There's no they're just kind of being asked to retract something. The, the the floor nurse is standing there just waiting for the next thing to happen and I just think there's there's definitely definitely a missed opportunity there around learning and I know there's the thing about focusing on the task so that you that you you know you, you can't be sort of distracted by trying to teach somebody because I know that I get distracted when I'm teaching and doing I'm not as focused on the patient as 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 I would be if it was just be, me by myself but there's things that you could do, such as the the think aloud sort of technique, where you can just say, you know, you just think aloud what you're doing. You're not necessarily teaching anybody, but people are listening to you and therefore uh, picking up some of the reasonings behind the different things that you're doing. Oh, it's interesting stuff. Uh, one more question. I'd like to go a little deeper into what you just mentioned there, and then I'll pass back to Ken. And, and you know, you said in the past that everyone should be learning, including the trainer and trainee and faculty. And I wonder, tell us a little more about how faculty can be learning whilst running simulation sessions or even even teaching or learning in the operating room? So I guess there's a couple of different aspects to it. The, 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 in some ways, the easiest or the easier one, I suppose, is the post sort of event learning, perhaps, where, um, you know, you look at the feedback from the participants and, and you know, you take something away from that. I always say to people, if if you're doing debriefing, people get a little bit kind of uh, stressed with video assisted debriefing because you have to, um, you know, bookmark um, a bit of video and then you have to be able to introduce it properly and use it appropriately. Um, and then, you know, per- oh, occasionally the participants are stressed out about it because they don't want to watch themselves back on video. And so I often say to people, if you've only got one camera in the room, um, you know, you've only got one camera to play with, 
then then focus it on you in the debrief you know you as a facilitator Mm -hmm. because that's where you're going to get the most learning from is to then take that uh, video and show it to a fellow debriefer and and say to them can we just have a little chat about this you know how my my questioning style was or how how i started the introduction or i just felt that there was a couple of participants who weren't who weren't uh, participating as much as I would like. And I was just wondering what else I could have done to get them to participate. So I suppose there's loads of sort of post-event learning and as the inter-event learning is, is perhaps more tricky, you know? Uh, and I think as, like with many things, it comes with practice where you are on the fly almost understanding what questions are working and what's not, what's with your situational awareness tuned into the participants you know how are you how does that question come across and was there is there a better way to phrase it should you actually say look I'm sorry I didn't mean to ask it like that let me rephrase it Uh, because you might see a raised eyebrow or you might see uh, sort of defensive kind of uh, posturing that you think actually that's not what I wanted to ask you know that's it's it's a question that suggests that I'm judging these people and I think that they did a really bad thing when actually you're, you're, you're there to help them learn and I think that comes a little bit with practice, I suppose, so that you are more skilled at the the kind of the automatic stuff, you know, that sort of system one stuff, so that you can have a bit more uh, system system two stuff going on. Michael, you were touching there a bit on meta debrief, weren't you? Yes, absolutely. Debriefing, yes. debriefing the debriefer. Yes. And you guys do a lot of that. Yes, and I think you have to, you know, I think if you if you if you preach to people, and no, I'm hoping it's not preaching, but if you're saying to people that the way to get better is to get is to do debriefs, then I think yeah. you know the way to get better at debriefing is to debrief your debriefs. You know, I, do you I ever debrief see, the debriefer of the debrief? Uh, no, I, I have mentioned to people that we could do it, and then you and you could because what you're basically debriefing then is you know how well did they debrief that debrief? You know how well sure. did they did they did they chat with that? person who's just done a debrief to try and find out what they did well and what their challenges were the the the, the nice thing about it is that the the, the reactions agenda setting analysis and take home messages is the same you know the structure is the same it's just that the learning objectives are different you know that that that's what changes with the meta debrief but yeah, I think you have to do it yeah, to get yeah. better. You know, I, I yeah. really, I really like Anders Ericsson's work on expertise and 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 again he talks about feedback deliberate practice you know, focusing on what you're doing, being outside your comfort zone and then getting feedback or debriefing, you know? Sure. Uh, we're, we're, we've only got a few minutes left. We could, uh, we could really go into this a lot more. It would be great. But in, in our last few minutes, I really liked the story that you brought when you spoke at our uh, webinar a few months ago. You, you opened actually with your daughter's reaction. I hadn't realized till today that your kids are homeschooled. That's big, yeah. <laughs> big, big respect, Michael, honestly. You quoted her reaction to this, this uh, photo of a, a scary looking man. And, and she'd said, I, I don't like this man. And you'd said, well, you shouldn't judge uh, somebody by their appearance. But then at the end of the talk, you showed the whole photo and he, he actually had a big axe with blood dripping from it. And, you know, if you'd, if you'd asked her, why she was scared of the man she'd have told you what her mental model was and uh, you'd have said yeah you're quite right you should run away so I, I just loved that and I wondered if all this about debriefing in simulation and in the workplace do you think it actually alters how you interact with people 
at home and socially and other parts of your life? Yeah, I suppose, again, just to go on a slight tangent, Ken, I, I say homeschooling because people understand what that means. Do you know what I mean? Uh-huh. People have a, but I suppose the mental model is incorrect. We talk about self-directed education at home, you know, so this right. is, if you ask my like nine-year-old, do they, does she get homeschooled? No, she doesn't get homeschooled. She's, you know, she has self-directed education. <laughs> but anyway, I mean, you're right. Does it, does it go into everyday practice? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, and I'm, you know, I'm by no means perfect. And I think one of the things that you get from doing a lot of DBS is that you realize how imperfect you are and how, how, how you can be better. I think initially you have that sort of, you know, that, ignorance that unknown unknown sort of you don't know how bad you are at something because you know it doesn't even cross your threshold of understanding yeah. and it's not until you do it a lot that you realize uh how how you take other people's sort of actions for granted you know we have this sort of that sort of was it the affirmation bias you know where you you think they made a mistake because they're stupid but i make mistakes but i mean i mean the very best kind of thing you know uh-huh. um so absolutely in, in in daily life, I, I very much try and understand why, whatever it was, whether that's, you know, my kids or whoever, whatever they did, they must have thought it was the right thing to do. You know, they must have, there must have been a reason behind it. Yes. You know? And I try and understand what that reasoning was before, you know, not jumping to conclusions and also to, to be accepting of people's fallibility, which is, which is you have to be as a debriefer in a, in a, in submission, you have to be accepting that people will make mistakes as you do, as we all do. And that that's okay. You know, that there's something there about maybe not making the same mistake twice or three times, you know, to, to learn from your mistakes, I think is one of the main things perhaps, but yeah, to be, to be more understanding of sort of, of, of human fallibility. Well, there you go. Uh, Dear listener, lessons for life as well as the workplace. (laughs) Okay. Last quick question, uh, Michael. So you're, president of the Association of Simulated Practice in Healthcare now. Um, should surgeons join up? And Absolutely. <laughs> but is there any other way of answering that question? So <laughs> I think I think what you said at the very beginning, Ken, there was something there about being focused on the, the stuff. You know, people are focused mm-hmm. on the equipment. They're focused on the haptic feedback, the, you know, how, how many pixels are on the screen. Which is, you know, it is important. It has to be realistic. And if the skill set is not there to actually make you make most use, you know, make optimum use of that piece of equipment, then what's the point almost in getting it? You know, I talk a lot about effectiveness and efficiency, but why not? Why not make the learning the most effective you can and most efficient in terms of not wasting your time and taxpayers' Uh, money when actually you could do you could do it better and, and to get away a little bit from the stuff why not why not do amazing debriefings every day in clinical practice so that you you do it for real on a, with a real person you know not not in an unsafe way but you know you're doing it because i don't see that you know i don't see that in, in real life you know unless unless the surgeons wander away afterwards and have a big powwow but i don't think that happens either so yeah should people join ask yes they should because it will give them the wider simulation community and and, yeah. and improve their understanding of all the different aspects of simulation. And I would absolutely agree with that um, from my experience of, of going to one or two of few meetings. Thanks, Ken. Okay, well, I think uh, let's... Um, we'll need to turn the recording off and have a debrief, eh? <laughs> Thank you so much for <laughs> coming, good. Michael. Thanks so much for having me, Ken. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Michael. 